I'm Katie. Welcome to Talking With Cancer. Thanks so much for being here. I started the podcast back in February 2022 when I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer called hobnail. And it was a way to keep my close friends and family up to date with my diagnosis and treatment. And that's evolved into what is now season three, where each week it's me plus a guest discussing all things about cancer. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello listeners, how have you been? I hope you've had a good week. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Dr. Alex Lyon, Matters of the Heart. That was a really interesting one. He had a lot to share and talk about. He was very generous with his time as well. So this week I am talking to my best friend. Her name is Katie as well. We talk at the beginning about how it's taken us a few goes to kind of get the interview off the ground. And I think that we were both quite nervous, actually, about the emotions that might come in that chat. Because what was really quite caring and altruistic of Katie when I was going through the early days of diagnosis back in February and March and April and May and basically a lot of the months that were kind of leading up to surgery and then post-surgery and even now I've always sort of resisted asking what it's like for her I guess because I feel like really heartbroken to know and also because I don't really know what to do with that experience or knowledge or information and it feels a bit strange to kind of want to comfort her through that although why wouldn't I I suppose but that that's how it's been really even though you know there have been many times where I've said to her I know this is really hard for you I know you're going through a lot I know with everything you're going through as well as what this is for you is a lot you know so I just wonder whether that fear really was what was holding me back from setting a date to chat But it was just such a lovely chat and I'm not going to talk about it too much. I'm just going to play it out and then, um, yeah, you can decide for yourselves. Today I'm speaking to someone who is so, so important in my life. Someone who, oh my God, just means the world. That's my best friend. And her name is also Katie. (laughs) Katie. (laughs) It's Katie and Katie Show. Yay! Thanks for joining me today, Katie. Of course. Is this a bit surreal? You're on my podcast. It is. It is surreal. And I think, as you said, like we've tried to do this a number of times and I think I can hear it in my voice. There's emotion. There's more. Or maybe I'm not surprised, but of course there's a lot of emotion because we are living this as much as a friend can with her best friend. But to actually kind of make a time to talk about it feels big. Mm, yeah that's so true to actually carve out time just to talk about you and me because it's not just about me it's about you and me I thought we should start by just going back a little bit the story of us how did we meet yeah please share well it's always confusing I think we always get confused about when when it started but we knew each other growing up didn't we we kind of had lots of friends in common and I and we lived near each other and I think as teenagers I always had big house parties and you (laughs) you would always be there (laughs) I love how you call them big house parties it was basically you and like a great group of friends in your bedroom we won't go into what you know it was nothing sordid but it was like a good time there was always a good time to be had at your house yeah you were often there and it was always nice to see you but it wasn't until I think we were about 18 and we decided to go to university and we ended up going to the same university. And that was it. We were firm friends, really. I mean, from the moment we met and we were Katie and Katie. And I think we were a nightmare because we would go into the halls of residence and we'd bang on people's doors and we'd introduce ourselves with this London confidence. (laughs) And it's cringeworthy now. (laughs) But we had a great time. And ever since then, really. Yeah. And I think what's lovely about that is like, first of all, remembering that like you can kind of form really good friendships a little bit later in life. I mean, okay, we were still really young, but 
we were, you know, it wasn't like we'd gone to school and together. And then I think also like how that friendship has evolved. It's just amazing because it's been like 20 plus years and mm -hmm. oh my God, it's just, yeah, it's just grown so, so much. And we've been through so, so much together, which is just amazing. I think that's I, what I thought actually talking about today. Our lives have changed so much, as you say, this is another change. And it's different, but we have, as you say, we're kind of unrecognisable. We're not those 18-year-olds anymore. No, and I think, like, I was thinking about, like, why did we like each other so much? You know, like, why are friends drawn to each other? And I think, like, I want to hear from you why you were drawn to me. Why but... I like you. Yeah, why do you like me? <laughs> why do you um, like me? I'm assuming you do. So, yeah, I think for me it was, like, the ability to access some depth you know, like I know in episode two, like with Deborah, where she talked about the ability to kind of go deep, but then to have fun and, you know, to be playful, but then to be authentic. And I feel like that's us. Like we can just be completely silly and have a total laugh. And then the next minute, you know, we can be talking really deep stuff. And I think we both love that, don't we? Yeah, no, it's funny because I thought about the guru when you asked that question, because she did, she said that you have that ability to kind of go from the kind of the everyday chat and fun and we laugh there are not many people I laugh with and I always say to you you make me laugh so much <laughs> <laughs> we've always been able to talk about anything and I also think that you know I've always felt that you've seen me you've really seen me and we have the ability to kind of say difficult things to each other and to kind of stand back and give each other perspective. But ultimately, you've kind of taught me what friendship is about. I've learned what friendship is about through our friendship. As you know, one of the most precious things in my life. It's really funny because I feel like you, you've taught me what friendship is about. And I always felt like because, like because you had a sister, I don't know, you have a sister and I have a brother. I always thought like you get sisterhood really well. You always put a lot of emphasis on how important it is to have women in your life. We always talked about how in an ideal world, we'd be married to each other. <laughs> we went through that. No, I know, I know. But I think you can have a wife. Like I always think about you as we have wonderful husbands, but I have a, a wonderful wife and that's you, you know. Mm. You've been away for a couple, well, a week now on holiday and I feel it I miss our daily yeah. chats I miss seeing you totally. I miss you sorting out all my problems <laughs> it's interesting I think maybe we'll come on to this how our friendships changed since my diagnosis mm -hmm. but I think that when you talked about being able to kind of be say it how it is to you like I am quite frank with you sometimes but I think you can be with me too but I think for both of us we know that comes from a really good place and also it's <laughs> like doesn't mean we have to do anything about it do you know what I mean like I can kind of dissect a bit of something that might be going on with you and it's just to kind of there you go there's what I see do what you want with it and I feel like yeah. it's the same the other way around whereas I don't know, that's again something that happens a bit later in life. Like, it's okay to get feedback and then to choose, like, okay, am I going to do I'm it? just laughing because you gave me feedback right at the start of our friendship when we were at university and I wasn't behaving. And, Go on, um, share that if you don't mind. So I had gone to uni a little bit confused and was more interested in partying and having a good time and as a result would often ask you where our lectures were and if I could copy your homework and <laughs> eventually and understandably with hindsight you lost it and you basically called me many things but I think even then it took a little bit of time going back to what you just said I think to constructively criticize someone from a place of love and to know that it always comes from a place of love is an amazing thing and I mean subsequent to that I left university it changed the course of my life. I ended up going back, doing something I really wanted to do. I'd like to think that we both have this amazing sense that whatever comes out of each other's mouths, it comes from a place of love and that we are always kind of each other's biggest fans. I think that's quite rare. At least it is. And it always has been for me. Yeah, definitely. And I love that that was something so poignant because I think underneath the anger of like no I'm not giving you my homework to copy or my seminar notes like I was I was kind of like what are you doing what are you doing here mm. so yeah I think lots of reasons 
why we like each other and liked each other at the beginning. But I'm interested as well to kind of ask, like, health, obviously. It's kind of the key subject here. But how has health played out in our friendship, do you think? Like, how, you know, do friends think about that with each other? Like, which one's healthy, which one might not, might be less healthy? How do you sympathise with each other? Like, what do you feel about the other person's health and how they live their life? Like, how do you think that's kind of played out for us? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is that opposites usually attract. And I think that that's probably the case with you and I, which I think has made your whole diagnosis difficult in many ways, because you have always been somebody who can have a really good time and always knew where to draw the line. Your health was always important. You'd be going off to India and doing your yoga retreats. You would have your big blue plates at university and be roasting vegetables. And you always cared about your body and what you put into it. And I think that was something that I always struggled with. And In, in yourself, you mean, or the fact that I did it? No, no, no. I think I struggled with it in myself. I always found it really inspirational, but it wasn't as easy. And it's never been as easy for me. I think I have never cared for myself like you have and in some way I can't not go straight into your diagnosis really from there because it was such a shock and I think there was a moment where we both looked at each other and again with a lot of love said you know this should be happening to you not to me and we both understood where that comment came from and we both kind of agreed with it but there is this notion that that I think we like to hold on to, that if you live well, you'll be well. And it's not true. I always think about that. And I always think about whether I'm going to be one of those people that people go, well, look at Katie Phillips. You know, she was always healthy and eating, you know, chopping up turmeric and ginger and, you know, and look at her, she's still got cancer. And I think, like, I always said prior to the diagnosis, like, I live well for my day-to-day well-being not for my longevity. Maybe I should never have said that. Maybe I put that out into the universe. But I always said that. Like, I feel, I want to feel good day to day. Like, and that's why I live like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't like the healthiest freak that I know. I know a lot more people who had it a lot more. But yeah, us, our friendship was often that I was taking care of myself and you weren't, to be really frank, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And that you... I guess like you had more vulnerability or you were more susceptible to be unwell. Yeah. And so what was it like pre-diagnosis? What do you remember during that time? I think about this a lot, actually, because I think there's, I don't know. And I sometimes wonder if what Dinch feels about this as well, this sense of, you know, what didn't I see? There was so much going on in your life and there were these symptoms that weren't going away. And what bugs me is that with anyone else, I'd think, they need to go and get those symptoms checked. You know, there was a little bit of allergic reaction. You had this cough, you had a tiny lump, but because you always live well, there was this kind of unconscious association that you were well, you were just living in a building site at the time and life was stressful. And, you know, if you could get past that, then the symptoms would go away. There's always two memories I have before diagnosis or prior to that very first appointment you had when they said to you there was, you know, malignancy. One was that we were having lunch. Actually, the week before we were having lunch, you we were talking about, I don't know, aging and grey hair and faces. And you said to me, I really need to do something because my face is getting really old and my iPhone isn't recognising my face anymore. My face ID is not working. And I remember laughing and just imagining that you were lying in bed and trying to open your phone. But that really haunted me afterwards, because actually you were saying something quite serious, that your phone recognition wasn't recognising something about the shape of be it your face or your neck. And that that had just passed me by. Oh, don't be silly. You know, you're just looking into things too much. And the other was that, of course, you'd had this little gland that had been dismissed And I remember the week before the diagnosis going for lunch, we were sitting at a cafe and you said, it's really got bigger, Katie, and you pulled your hair back. And I, for a second, lost my breath because we spend all our time with the people closest to us. And I sometimes think that means that we don't see. We see the person we love. We don't see the little details. We don't see the change. And I think seeing the growth in your neck at that point was just a real shock 
And so I already had concerns before that first appointment. And, you know, you're, you're the eternal optimist. I'm much more of a pessimist. You were like, Dinch was away. And I said, I think I should maybe come to that appointment with you. And you said, no, 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 no you definitely don't. And I was like, just wait outside. I sometimes wish I wish I'd listened to myself a bit more. But you said, no, he's just going to give me some antibiotics. It's going to be the end of it, you know. And of course, it wasn't. You know, it's funny because I've never shared this on here, but before there were two incidences. One was at the end of the year. So I was diagnosed in February. One was with a friend in December and the other was with a different friend in January. Both of them said to me, they don't know each other. They're not connected in the slightest, but they both said to me, are you okay? You seem different. You don't seem yourself. You seem sad or something doesn't seem right. And obviously I was going through IVF and I just said, really I was like surprised that they said it I was like really that's really surprised me no I mean obviously it's not the greatest fun fertility treatment and stuff but I don't feel that and then the fact that you felt something as well but you didn't I know for a fact that if you'd have said to me Katie this is really serious you need to go to a doctor I'd have said don't be ridiculous Katie it's nothing I know I'd have said that and you probably mm. know that too and I think that's also really hard when you have roles with a friend, like we've talked about health already, like sometimes like there's a break in the norm. That was one of those big breaks in the norm between us. Yeah. And I think it's really important to listen to those things, you know? Yeah. And, you know, of course, if you'd have shown me a lump on your neck like that size, I'd have been like, why haven't you been to the doctor? And that's always the irony and the thing I beat myself up about. It's like, you know, here we are talking about how good I was with my health, but I never went to the doctor. Mm. I never did. And also I've talked on here about how you said you wished you'd come with me and I've said it to you and I said it on the podcast. You weren't meant to. I was meant mm -hmm. to go to that appointment on my own. That's the reality of going through something like this. And that's the reality of kind of thinking about all the worst things that can happen. Like those are your own thoughts. And mm -hmm. I never for once resented you for that or felt anything about that but I remember being very confused coming out of that appointment did I hear right you know was I clear about it and then you were kind of ready and waiting and you came straight away I remember we like walked around like <laughs> the local high street just kind of I didn't know what we were doing but what was your impression of what the doctor said to me? What did you think he'd said? There's always those moments where terms that we know become foreign to us, I think, sometimes because of fear. So you'd heard, you know, him say to you, I'm pretty sure this is malignant. But there was suddenly this confusion between what benign and malignant meant. And I remember kind of we were walking and we were walking and there was this kind of we stopped at one point and you kind of were asking the question again. And it was like, that means it's cancer. Okay. It's cancer. And I think right from that afternoon and that afternoon went into early evening, we ended up going for dinner together and it was the start of a really, really difficult period for you of not knowing what this was. And I think, for you and everyone that loved you, there was this hope that it could just be the type of cancer that could just be dealt with, be a bit difficult, and then you'd get on with things. But I think as the weeks went on, everyone realized that it was far more complicated than that. But what I always think when I think back, that first kind of afternoon and evening together, because obviously Dinch was away and you had to phone him and tell him what had happened. Um, and I remember kind of thinking how desperately difficult that must have been for him to receive that news and for you to tell him when you didn't really know yourself what it meant yet but I remember even then this experience of this is just our new normal now and there are pockets of just normality in this new paradigm that you know we had a dinner it was a nice dinner but of course the conversation kept going back to the fact that this is what's just happened and I don't know what's going to happen next and I kind of think that's what's continued since February this kind of journey of slipping in and out of cancer and being conscious of where you are, what's happening, your treatments, and you being consumed at times by that, but then other times where we enter 
pockets of time where I mean I can't speak for you but there are moments where it's kind of there's a freedom of that things return to something that feels like it did I can't say more than that but it's like everything's changed but then nothing's changed yeah and that's exactly what I've always said from the beginning I think what struck me that day I remember that day that night so so well with you you what was really interesting was that you'd delved into that world of cancer and particularly cancer in our age group. You had much more of an understanding kind of generally than I did. You know, I hadn't had any friends with cancer, but you had, you know, all I'd really been close to was kind of an older generation going through it. My dad with pancreatic cancer that was terminal from the off, you know, my mum's friends but you were much more like I suppose in a way like hopeful in the sense that you'd gone right you'd kind of been in it and you were the one that said to me Katie there are people there's a whole world out there there's a whole community there are cancer patients on social media and they're sharing their life and like some of it's really optimistic some of it's not but like and I remember just being like no 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 like you know, I was very, at the beginning, I found it very, very hard to feel like I was part of that community, like, mm -hmm. and also to kind of find stories that resonated with me, mm -hmm. you know, because it was very early on that they said, we don't really know what this is. We know it's cancer. We know it's thyroid, but it's very unusual. The team that diagnosed me, you know, sent me to the Royal Marsden because they were like, ah, we don't know how to deal with this. So I couldn't find those stories, but now I realize everyone's, story is different everyone's experience is different just because I don't have the cancer that everyone talks about there are still a lot of things and feelings that are the same so I guess your starting point was different like what was some of your experience what did you think in terms of how this could play out or did you not think like that I think you can't help but think about how something's going to play out I think cancer has connotations of very immediate connotations of is this person going to live or die and then you have to get beyond that and I think that's where maybe I did have more experience was this idea that regardless of the answer to that question there's a whole life to be had and a life to be made a different life but still a life and I don't know if it's because of what I do meeting people who are suffering from cancer or having had friends with cancer or just being the type of person who always thinks that we walk past hundreds and thousands of people every week and we just have no idea what they are living with or what they're dealing with. And I'm always quite fascinated by that. You know, we'll get angry with someone in a car, we'll smile at someone in a restaurant, whatever it is. But everybody is carrying a story and carrying a weight. And so I began to follow certain people online and found it really inspirational how difficulty can be transformed into a different way of living. And I laugh about what you said, because you're right. Your initial response was, I do not want cancer to label me. And I do not want to be part of the cancer community. And, and more so, I'm not going to be involved in social media. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, look where we are. But you were. I mean, that's the other thing. I think that it's a journey. And I think that every day brings, you know, a new learning for you from what I see and witness and from the people around you that you can't draw the line under anything. What about you? Because that, I suppose, that's the thing, you know, what I'm interested to hear as well is like, for a best friend listening, you know, and I hate to use the phrase I can't imagine because Deborah would, wouldn't be happy with that. I know, actually, I'd be absolutely devastated. I've said it so often, like my heartache is often around how this is affecting other people you know even that makes me feel really emotional it's like how the hell would I cope if you were going through this mm. it says so much about you and you've at the beginning the pockets of time where you know we talk about the kind of time in between scans and then scan time and result time and difficult conversation time and you it's who you are you have this incredible ability to make room for another person in your mind and you said to me on many occasions and a lot at the beginning 
I can't bear to think about what this is like for you because you, in a way, know. We don't talk about it. And I think that's also, I mean, we can go on to that, but there is a new boundary that, that has to be created in a friendship because one thinks about things and, and delves into things and faces things, even though you're not the person suffering, being next to her at different times. But listening to you on the podcast, when you said you wanted to do a podcast, well, it was originally a kind of a recording, as everyone knows. I thought it was a brilliant idea. And obviously doing it with Claire, I mean, I couldn't think of two better people to have the conversation, but slowly it developed into wanting to make it a podcast. And I think I had, as you know, my reservations, because on the one hand, it was hard to really imagine what this would be. And I knew that you could make it something great. It's what you do. But I was worried about you. You know, my concern was always, you always have to ask yourself, and we talked about this many times, like, what do I need now? And this can never become something that takes priority over my own needs. And by that, I mean that the expectation or the desire for other people to keep up with your story must never take over what you need on a day-to-day basis. And we kind of put down ground rules, didn't we? Like, you're not allowed to talk about anything or break news on social media before we've spoken to each other. Yeah. Because I think, you know, on the one hand, because it's really hard. I can't remember what it was. You'd had a good scan and of course you were excited and I kind of woken up wondering what the scan results were and and I saw it online. And I remember we had a conversation after that, one of our conversations where I said that was really difficult. Yeah. But we always listen. Yeah, I was really upset. And and then you started making calls and saying, I'm telling you this before I tell anyone else. And it's been incredibly inspirational listening to you and listening to my best friend, you know, on her podcast, because there's rarely a subject, especially in season one or two, that we hadn't discussed, talked about at length. But to be able to sit back and to hear the details and often little bits of new details was really cathartic and it really helped me to kind of to think further about your experience and and as always how can I support you in your experience and and where you are now I mean I don't need to say it what you've done is incredible I think what's really interesting that you talked about is like I always thought that boundaries are something that you have to put in place with friendships or relationships that need sort of tweaking what you've just reminded me or what you've just made me realize is that all friendships and relationships however brilliant can have boundaries and I think what I've done subconsciously with you is I've placed a boundary there which is like I can't hold what you're going through about me it's been really subconscious I've probably done that with a lot of people, probably with the exception of Dinch. And it's probably because I can't handle it. You know, I can't handle the person that you come to to express how you're feeling about me. I mean, maybe that's just obvious, but it is a big thing that we don't share. And I suppose that's why, because I know, I know that you're in pain. I know that it's upsetting for you. I know that you've cried about it. I know you've thought about my death. I know all those things because I would too. But I guess I think like I can't hold that as well as what I'm holding about myself. And you've mm-hmm. just understood that. You've just totally understood that. And that's not to say you won't cry with me or you won't if I ask you a question. You know, I remember saying to you, it was like back in May, we were away for my birthday. And I remember Dinch was like, it was a period where he was like fixated on my mortality. I had really mixed feelings about that. You know, I was like, don't think about it because then you're going to make make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> but then I quickly realised, of course, he's going to think about it. And I asked you, I was like, you know, Dinch is kind of a bit fixated about this and I have to, I have to let him have those thoughts. Like, do you think those thoughts? You were like, of course, like, of course I do. And of course, everyone close to you does. And I guess it's like, yeah, of course, like, of course you do. I think, what I'm interested to know is, and it's not to kind of like, I guess, put any pressure on myself at all, but like, how much are you influenced by how I deal with it? Well, I'm completely influenced with how you deal with it. And I have been, I mean, I'm a 
secret optimist, but generally I'm pessimistic. That's the biggest secret you've ever told me. (laughs) But you're an optimist. And that was born when you were born. You know, your response and your optimism in relation to your cancer is no surprise. You have been an optimist about everything. It's who you are. And it's incredibly contagious. And I would say that I share that optimism about your diagnosis because I have no choice. Because in a way, we have no choice. And there's nobody that can say otherwise. But to say there's not a darker side that doesn't, at moments, you know, that isn't terrified at the prospect of, like, not living out our days together. I know it sounds like a romance, but we always had this dream, didn't we, that when our husbands kick the bucket, we'll end up in some fabulous old age home. <laughs> Is um, at moments completely overwhelming. But I, I think I just go back to something that you said when we were talking about the evening that you got your initial diagnosis. And of course, we'd gone for dinner and and then you went home on your own. And I said, you know, do you want me to stay with you? And I remember feeling quite relieved, actually, when you said no, because I recognised in that moment that I needed some time and you needed some time. And there have been many moments over the past year where you have had time. And ultimately, no matter who loves you and who's around you, this is your diagnosis alone. Only you know how you feel at any given moment. And I think as a friend, the same thing happens, that yes, there are, I guess, new boundaries. I don't bring my emotion in difficult moments about your diagnosis to you. But it wouldn't be helpful even if I did. Only I can face my emotions about your diagnosis within myself and each of us have that journey and so we can talk to other friends or we can talk to you know learned professionals and we can dive into google and we can do whatever we want but ultimately we are it's so cliched but we're all alone and we have to go through that journey within ourselves and i think that you've shown me how you've done that and i think that i have to do that in my own way yeah I think that's probably like, you know, the sort of the crux of it, really, because, you know, we all fear about dying alone. And what does that really mean? You know, someone can be by your bedside or you can have that. But ultimately, you know, you kind of pass on your own. And I think there's a lot in this society about, you know, not being able to be on your own, you know. And I think that's really like quite a dangerous mindset, I suppose. I think it's important for people to be able to, again, like advocate for themselves and be empowered and say, no, this is, I need to kind of deal with this on my own. And sometimes for really good reason, people, you know, they want to kind of be around you and they want to come with you to appointments. I've talked about this as well. Or It might be really important to have that company, but it equally could be really important to be on your own and I think like you respected that you always respect that I think I was just going to say I think you're right I think that there is a kind of like an internal self journey that each of us are capable of doing in all situations in our life but it has to be the right time and you know going back again to your you know I'm not part of the cancer community I don't want to be and I'm not going to engage with this and then the slow progression to realizing that actually there might be something that's good for me here or something that I can utilize and watching you what's been interesting is that I think part of being a friend to somebody with cancer is allowing them to lead the way in terms of when they are ready to face different aspects of what a diagnosis brings be it the very difficult ones the word death, you know, what is this going to mean? How long have I got? What, what What's important to me? But equally, the parts that don't want to think about it and want to ignore it and don't want to get involved, you know, it, that journey has to be led, I think, by you. And in response, we, the people closest to somebody, have to go on that journey as well. There are times where it's easier to live in like a, a little bubble and to just focus on the now and not to think ahead and to trust oneself as to when the right time is to kind of delve a little deeper or feel a bit more or or not. 
Yeah, I mean, it took me age. Yeah, totally. I think that's something you do brilliantly. You know, you've never said to me, Katie, you're in denial, or Katie, you've not asked certain questions, or Katie, you know, what about this? Have you thought about this? Like, never, because I think, well, you've got the trust. This is my journey and experience, and some of those things that you might want to know, which you might. It's not my time to ask. And again, I talk about that on the podcast, like difficult questions. It took me a while to ask those questions. I think that to me is what felt completely natural and right. Like, and again, that's partly why I did this podcast because, well, like you said, originally it was an audio. It was just a recording with a really good friend of a conversation. And because what's difficult is like being asked lots of questions by the people around you, you know? And I think Mm -hmm. that's something you realize quickly and I learned that in myself when other people have something wrong you know the more questions you ask them the less kind of adequate they feel about what they're going through if they don't have those answers or Mm -hmm. I don't know it's a balance isn't it because sometimes it could be really helpful I mean one of the things that you did say to me on that very first day of diagnosis is how do you know you're with the right people how do you know these are the best doctors and I was like oh yeah that's a really good point you know, again, that kind of not just taking someone's word for it, like getting a second opinion or, you know, getting a recommendation or doing some research into who might be the expert in that, in your field of cancer or whatever the illness is, I think is a really good way to approach it, really smart way I think, to approach I think, it. I think it is. But I think also, if I'm really honest, I think there was a genuine desire to make sure from the beginning, like, are you... Are you sure you're with the right people? Because you need the best care out there and you need the best brains on this. But there's also something that's more selfish because there's a real feeling of powerlessness. Like, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. And so we kind of clutch at straws. You know, let me speak to the person I know who's running this and let me speak. Because you're so desperate to provide something but of course, then there's a realization that you can't. You can just try and be a good friend. That's all you can do. And there are so many other areas in life where we can do so many things to make situations better, to help rectify situations. And cancer's not one of them. I mean, one of the things I think, you know, was early on, like Dinch and I would come to you for family dinners. And it was like, that was so special because I knew everyone around the table knew, but like it didn't have to be, there was sensitivity with it, but it didn't have to be the conversation and your household was just as hectic as it always is. You know what I mean? And like all of that. And that's really important, I think, because it's like life goes on, life carries on around you, you know, people's lives carry on. And I think that's, you know, that's sometimes confusing for people who are going Mm. through something like this because you're like, how is everyone else, you know, I just want my life to be hectic and normal and boring and, you know, mundane. I was laughing because I I remember the first of those dinners with your mum, your mum came to, and I think there's the whole thing about food. What can I do? I can feed. That's what I can do. But I think you're right. I think for people who maybe don't see you all the time, or there's this idea of what having, you know, serious cancer looks like, like, and people will say things like, you know, how's Katie? And it's like, yeah, she's she's absolutely fine. Like we went out for lunch yesterday, we had a really good time or we went to the theatre last night or whatever it is. But there's this misconception that to have cancer means that you are kind of a physical representation of something quite deathly in a way. And you couldn't be further from that. You are so brimming with life. And I don't feel that I can't bring my things to you. I mean, am I going to call you up and complain about my children or my marriage on the morning of your scan or just before you go into a, you know, to go and see Kate? No, probably not. But we talk about everything. And there are times, and that dinner, the very first dinner, we didn't talk about the cancer. And it felt really necessary because otherwise it just defines you. And you are Katie with cancer, not cancer with Katie, you know? Yeah. yeah. You did that really, really well. And I think for a while you didn't bring anything to me. Like we didn't, you know, and I remember saying to you, I feel like I can't be a good friend to you at the moment because I don't know mm. what's going on in your life. And you're like, shut up. Where do you go with your stuff though? Where do you, I mean, look, you know, like me, you've got a very analytical brain and you are very self-aware and, but 
yeah, I think that's important for the listeners, like for the best friend, not just about being there for the other best friend, but what who's there for you? How do you handle that stuff? I think it's a difficult one because I can turn to the people, the other people that are closest to me, but I find that there's a real propensity to tell people that everything's going to be okay or don't think about the worst, just think about now. And I don't work like that. You know, I do think about the worst and I don't always want to be positive. And I think it goes back to that reckoning where ultimately it's not that helpful for me to talk about this with anybody, but to be able to sit with it within myself. And I think I have provisions and training in my life to do that, which is helpful. And I think I also have a sense where things get to a point and I need to step away within myself. But I can only process this because only I can understand the kind of relationship that we have and what it means to me and what's at stake, really. So I think on the one hand, I can only answer that by saying I do have supportive people around me, but they can only support up to a certain point. And I think I also can't help but going back to the fact that we still, regardless of where this journey takes you, have a hell of a lot of living to do. You know, we are having, and we have continued to have a lot of fun. We make amazing memories. We've always done that. We laugh every day. We make plans. And I think it's important to remember that too, that, you know, we've got life to lead. It's different, but we're still living it. I do laugh about when you say, when people ask you how I am, people who don't know me, you know, but just know your best friend's going through cancer. Because I think also like, I don't know if I, I can't really articulate this. Maybe you'll be able to do it for me. For some people, I can kind of exist as a marker on where how their life is, because it's never going to be as bad as what I'm going through. And I remember, again, like early on with other friends, as well as you, but you did obviously didn't do this, like friends saying, oh, I've got this going on. Mm. Oh, but I don't need to bother you with that. Oh, you know, I'm going through this. It's really difficult. Or even health stuff as well. And I'd be like, what? That's relevant in your life. Like, and... I hate being this. I mean, in cancer, we call it a tumor marker. You know, you can do bloods and it's a tumor marker. Like, I literally feel like a tumor marker for other people. <laughs> like, yeah, I agree with you. And you know, I hate it. I hate it when people go, I shouldn't be talking about that because it's worse for Katie. I think we thought this before. Like, we all have our shit and our shit is huge to us. Like, I still have, excuse me for swearing the whole time, but big shit and it's relevant. And I don't need to dismiss it because Katie has cancer or because her predicament right now might be more challenging than mine. It drives me mad when people say that. And I always just say, what are you talking about? One thing's got nothing to do with the other. Yeah. And it's like you say, you know, I'm probably living more than I've ever lived. So, like, there's a lot that's been, like, released and a lot that's come to me and a lot of amazing experience and meaning. Mm. So it's interesting. I think that people do that kind of to make themselves feel better, maybe. I think there's a genuine feeling. We all have it, you know, it's like, I mean, you know, I could talk about it with my kids when, you know, they don't eat their dinner. You want to say, well, there are children starving somewhere else, but that doesn't mean anything to them. They're babies and they just don't want to eat their dinner. You know, I think we have this sense of always thinking about how lucky we are as opposed to saying, well, actually, no, you know, things are really crap today for whatever reason. But I've seen it a lot with your diagnosis, a sense that people need to be apologetic for making any complaint within their own life. And I think that's a shame. You know, as we also know, we're dealing with your diagnosis now, but time goes on and people, all kinds of things happen to all kinds of people, you know, and including me and everybody else. And that journey has yet to unfold. And we we try and make the most of wherever we are in the present moment. Yeah, I'm just thinking that, like, you know, in kind of three months, this will have been a year. I know. And that is just mind-blowing. What does that feel like? Does it feel like a year? Um, In some ways, it's been a complete and utter blur. Definitely around the summer with my surgery, I lost a lot of time. It's been so intense in so many ways so joyful in so many ways, so difficult in so many ways. But I think like one thing I love doing with you is like reflecting back, 
you know, and sort of deconstructing how things have been. And I know when we get to that year, February 15th, like there will just be, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of, again, I'm curious what will happen at that point. What will it be like? Yeah, I mean, look, we always have a lot to we always have a lot to dissect, don't we, Katie? <laughs> yeah, we do. But then there's also this kind of we often say to each other that there are these, you know, there are these like areas of there's this calm time, and then there are these storms. Like the operation was this storm, and sometimes I think that where one helps. Well, I mean, we do it in everyday life, regardless of your diagnosis. But it's that thing of this is going to pass. Like you're going to get through this bit. There's going to be an easier time and then there's probably going to be a harder time again but there is an easier time ahead and, and that kind of that constant reckoning and it makes me think about the year because you know february 15th can be a big day you know an anniversary of something but it's also just another day it just makes me think about why we segment blocks of time and use them as markers like what relevance do they have i don't know it'll be interesting I think definitely because I have described it as grief like there is something about that first year of grief you know because it's like the first of things and so you know you've got a whole new outlook and the world looks completely different and nothing is the same and yet it's another birthday or another Christmas or whatever it is so I think that first year is always quite sort of poignant but we shall see. We shall see. We shall. Oh, I love chatting to you. We did it. We've tried. We did it. Thanks so much, Kay. I Thank love you, Kay. To you. It wasn't too it's emotional, so nice was it? No, I, my tissues are still sitting over there. But what I laugh about is because we'll say goodbye on here and then we'll call each other in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just debrief. So true. Can't wait for the debrief. Me love too. You, I love you. Love you, doll. Of course, we did pick up the phone to each other straight away afterwards. Yeah, it was such a great conversation with Katie. I mean, she's super smart and it was interesting listening back to that because I realised like we use quite similar vocabulary and we do have, I guess, sort of similar expressions and similar ways of talking and thinking about things. And that's probably what's kept our friendship so strong for so many years. She really is someone who has genuinely taught me a lot about real true friendship and loyalty and how important that is to kind of have those women in your life as well. So I don't know how I would have even begin to get through this without her. And I really hope if you're listening that you've got a Katie in your life as well and that you appreciate if you do, and that your Katie appreciates you, which I'm sure she does. Um, we chatted for quite a while, I knew we would, and so I didn't really have loads to talk about originally at the end of this interview. But actually, there's quite a few things that I've thought about this week. One of them is this idea that we chat about in, in the interview, like, why is it that we as a culture, I think, remember those that are less fortunate than us as a way to kind of hold gratitude in mind and be appreciative of what we have. I suppose I take some sort of offence to that. I don't really know why. I mean, it's understandable. And I was chatting to a friend this week about a friend of hers who lost her husband and is left with three small children. And my friend said, you know, when I think about her and what she's going through, gosh, you know, it's just so sad and it's so awful. And I kind of like jumped down her throat a little bit. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, like we've all got our stuff and, you know, maybe there's things that are playing out in her life, you know, in a different way. I'm not sure I can really articulate it. Maybe it's very personal to me that I don't want to be someone's pity story. But I also understand, like, we do all do it, and it gives us perspective, doesn't it? When we think about how our lives could have turned out, you know, look at so-and-so, we could be in that position. I guess there's something where we might empathise with someone and think, gosh, you know, that could be how we're living out our life. 
But I guess for me, what's funny about that is that I'm living my life. I feel, especially lately, like I'm really living my life. And all the hardships that's come with this and some real challenges and some real fears and some real thoughts around mortality and longevity and quality of life and pain and suffering and, you know, real stuff. Despite all of that, I guess, you know, when I look back and I think about the kind of journey to here and all the different stages of that, one of the things that Deborah said to me, which I think I mentioned previously on the podcast, this idea that I was shedding skin, I think that's a really good way to describe it, actually. And what happens when you shed skin is you almost become more sensitive to everything. And I don't mean sensitive about what people say, but literally your senses are sensitized. And like for me, for example, one of the things I'm suddenly living in and seeing is autumn for the first time. I am just in awe of the color of the trees and the air and the temperature and the wind and just all of the elements that autumn brings. They're so special and so lovely. I think maybe when you kind of strip back the layers, you know, you sort of see things more clearly. That's what I feel. So I'm definitely seeing things more clearly. I'm seeing relationships more clearly. I'm seeing dynamics in relationships more clearly. And it's a really good place to be, I think. It feels really, really good. So, yeah, I suppose, you know, what I'm saying is, like, don't feel sorry for me. I'm living a really full life. And, of course, you know, I didn't want a cancer diagnosis and I didn't want to live through what I've been living through. But it's so real, you know. I started an art class today at Maggie's. They do this five-week sort of art therapy. It's kind of free drawing, and there's about six or seven of us in the group. And um, such an interesting mix of people, you know. We're all really different from what I can see on the outside, and obviously we all share a cancer story. But I don't think our paths would ever have crossed had we not had cancer. This woman that came in a bit late to the class, she just started drawing straight away and tears just streamed out of her. And prior to that, we'd all been kind of making idle chit-chat and chatting away. And I actually thought, you know, once she started crying and everyone in the room became aware that she was there and she was crying and she was drawing, I sort of thought, good for her. That's how she's feeling today. She is feeling sad, pain, fear, whatever triggered those tears. And I just started to cry as well. And I kind of thought, you know, I felt what she was feeling. And I'm never too far away from those tears. But it also, you know, it felt good. It was like a good feeling and I didn't kind of hold them back. I just let these tears flow. And I think like there would have been a time where I wouldn't want people to see me crying or I'd really fight the tears back. But that's what I mean. Like by your senses, you kind of, you really feel things. And yeah, it just, it just changed for that short period of time and then we kind of went back to the chit chat and it was all, you know, really nice and really friendly group and really interesting exercise, actually, sort of two hours of this kind of free drawing. And yeah, I think like, I don't know, it's just that idea of kind of being in a little community, something that I fought against, I think, originally. And now I'm finding that really lovely, really, really lovely. In other news, I went to see Kate Newbold yesterday. That's my four-week check-in. I have to have all my bloods taken so that she can sign off my cycle of ontrectinib. You know, I said to her, do you know what, Kate? Like, I, if someone asked me, where is the cancer in my body? I would say I'm not totally clear. 
I'd say I know I've got like a couple of lymph nodes under my chin. Then I have got one on my collarbone, which is visible and I can feel it. And actually, sorry, there are two there. So there's one right in the middle on the collarbone and a lot bit further along on the left on the collarbone. And then I think I've got a little bit more sort of bit further down around the windpipe. And then I know I've also got some cancer in the lungs. And all of this is sort of, it's still the thyroid cancer, even though the thyroid's been taken out. So it's not a different type of cancer. It's the same cancer, but it's in the lymph nodes in those places. And I said to that, you know, does it make a difference to kind of look at the pictures? And what difference was what I was thinking about? You know, we want to know stuff, but actually what difference is that going to make? Like, I know the cancer's there and I know I'm taking a treatment to treat that. And I know that that's working. It is decreasing the cancer, be it marginally, but it is. And she said, well, we can have a look at the scan if you want. We can have a look at the last scan you did. So I said, okay, let's have a look at the pictures. And what I've just described to you was pretty spot on, to be honest. Um, it was, you know, there in front of me in black and white. It's really weird seeing these these photo images of kind of where this cancer is and how it kind of looks into the body sort of from the feet up. I can't really explain it. Yeah, I, I just, I'm feeling quite well at the moment. And it's such a good feeling to have a, a good old period where I'm feeling well and fit and energised. I've been through some rough times and I feel like I've kind of earned it because it does come with some guilt, I won't lie. I feel a bit guilty that I feel so good. So, yeah, that's the latest for you. I've been playing out these lovely voice notes from listeners who've been in touch. And this week, um, I wanted to play out a voice note that was sent to me following an email from a woman called Hannah, who is part of a UK charity called ALK International. And I responded to her lovely email and said, if you would like to put a voice note together or you have someone that works for the charity or that the charity helps who would like to put a voice note together, then please do. And really nicely... She sent me just that. So I'm going to play that. Over to you. Hi, everybody. My name is Jamie and I live in Kent. Did you know that anyone can get lung cancer? I certainly didn't, but I learnt it three years ago when one day I suddenly had a seizure. I have a mutation-driven, non-hereditary lung cancer known as out-positive. It tends to strike younger people and people who have never smoked. I've since become a trustee for a charity named ALK International, where we advocate and fundraise for research into this type of cancer, which can also present in other places like in the skin, breast, childhood cancers like neuroblastoma, and others. It's Lung Cancer Awareness Month, so please help us spread the word that anyone can get lung cancer. Thank you, Jamie, for sending that via Hannah at ALK International. And what's really interesting for me is that because I have the ROS1 gene, which is seen in lung cancer, it's not seen in thyroid cancer, I'm really familiar with lots of other patients like Jamie who have what they call small cell lung cancer with a mutating gene. So ALK is one, ROS1 is another. And, yeah, it's really sad because very often... Well, with these kind of lung cancers, it affects non-smokers. It could affect smokers as well, I don't know. But what I'm saying is that when people hear lung cancer, they often think, oh, they're probably a smoker. But very often, actually, they aren't smokers and they might be young and they live a healthy life. So alkinternational.org is a charity that is worth checking out. And thanks again so much for sending in that voice note. If you have got a cancer story or you know someone with a cancer story, that could be anything. That could be you've been impacted, you were almost diagnosed with cancer, you had a, a scare with cancer or you've been treated with and you're cancer-free, anything. You've started a charity, a book, anything or, or none of the above. If you've been impacted by cancer, then drop me a note, hello at talkingwithcancer.com and I'd be really happy to play out a voice note up to two minutes long get in touch and yeah I'd really appreciate that so 
That is episode six of season three. I hope you had a nice time listening to that. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I really did. I really enjoyed listening. Really grateful to Katie for chatting to me this week. Stay well, stay in touch and take care. I'll see you next week. Lots of love. Bye.